Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child is to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kelly. Well, if it hasn't uh, already been obvious up to this point, we're in the season of Advent. Today's the first Sunday of Advent. The word Advent just means uh, arrival or coming. It is the season of the year that the church pauses and takes a sustained focus on, a, on the, the first arrival, the first coming of Jesus as a way to help us pre- to prepare for the second coming and the second arrival of Jesus. Consequently, it's also the season in the life of my family where we watch the movie Elf. It is our family Advent tradition. If you haven't seen Elf, I, I hope you've seen Elf. I don't know, you know, this is not going to work very well, what I'm about to talk about if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, the basic premise is you've got Will Ferrell, who's a, uh, his name is Buddy, and when he was a little baby, he accidentally crawled into Santa's toy sack, which was left open while Santa was distracted eating cookies, as he is wont to do. And uh, he accidentally gets swept away to the North Pole. And so he gets raised with a bunch of elves, thinking that he's an elf. He's not an elf. He's a human. He discovers this later in life. It's a traumatic moment for him. Uh, but he, know, he, he comes to learn about his past, that his real father is this guy in New York City, and so he, he sets off to leave the North Pole to reconnect with his dad, and he does so, and all sorts of hilarity and tomfoolery ensue. But if you've ever seen this movie and, and watched it from the perspective of the dad, it's a different kind of movie. Because here's this man, he's got a family, he's doing his thing, he's going to work, he's working at the uh, children's book publisher, and one day... In the middle of his work day, a man shows up in his office wearing green tights and says, I'm your son, and you're my father, and I love you, I love you, I love you. And, of course, the, the dad is, uh, rightly thinks this man is not well, and he sends him away. 
only to receive in the mail a few days later lingerie that was sent from Buddy to him as a gift. And Buddy keeps showing up, and eventually Buddy moves into his apartment. And when he brings him into his apartment, he, he trashes the apartment. He, you know, he knocks down the Christmas tree. He smashes up their furniture and takes the wood and turn, you know, makes it into a rocking horse in the middle of the night. He just The, the whole family system gets thrown out of whack. All the relationships gets, get blown up. And the dad eventually loses his job. Buddy just comes smashing into his life and his whole world, his whole, the way, his whole life, as it were, is totally flipped upside down. It's totally upended. But of course, this, this disruption, this intrusion into his life is uh, ultimately redemptive. He becomes a whole person in the end. The dad becomes whole. The family gets reconnected. They become stronger. They you know, bring in Christmas. They save Christmas, as every Christmas movie does. And uh, it's wonderful. I, I bring this up because as we think about Advent, as we think about Christmas, baby Jesus being born, uh, it's all sweet. It's all very sentimental. But it, it is an extremely disruptive intrusion into human history, into our life, into our world. You know, we associate Christmas with these, we have these images. You think about Christmas trees or wreaths or gingerbread cookies and I think, biblically speaking, it may, it may be a more appropriate image to be associated with Christmas would be a wrecking ball or uh, demolition explosives. Because when, when God shows up in the person of Jesus, it disrupts everything, ultimately redemptively, but it's extremely uh, disruptive. And so what we're going to do for this, uh, for this season of Advent as we lead up to Christmas is we're going to look at this, the classic Christmas story in these early chapters of Luke. This is where you get the manger and the angels and the shepherds and kind of all of these familiar uh, images that it's so easy to sentimentalize. It's so easy to kind of gloss over. We've heard it all before. You know, we've seen all the Christmas cards, Charlie Brown Christmas, blah, 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 blah. So I want to look at this story with uh, fresh eyes and hopefully we'll see how truly um, disruptive and redemptive it all is. So here's what I want to do for this morning. I want to look at this divine intrusion under three quick categories. I want you to see how it is, one, shockingly gracious. I want you to see, secondly, how it is infinitely healing. And third, that it is worth the cost. This divine intrusion into our world, it is shockingly gracious, it's infinitely healing, and it's worth the cost. So, how is it shockingly gracious? Look at, um, look at how the passage begins. God sends this angel, Gabriel, to this uh, young girl named Mary. She's just going about her life, doing her thing. Bam! Angel shows up. Intrusion. And in verse 28, this angel says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And look at her response. Her response in verse 29, it says, She was greatly troubled at the saying. She's, she's shocked by this. She's traumatized by this. This is a very, very disturbing moment. But notice, she is not greatly troubled by the fact that an angel just showed up in her face, which I'm sure would be troubling in and of itself. But it says that she's troubled at the saying. What the angel said is disturbing to her. It doesn't make sense to her. Because the angel gives her, gives her this this highly elevated greeting, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. It doesn't make any sense to her. And here's why. Mary would have been, you know, scholars think somewhere around 12 or 13 years old when the story happened. 
So she's extremely young. She's a, you know, she's a tween. Um, we know that she would have been um, economically, financially impoverished. She was not wealthy. She came from a very humble family. Um, we know that she, was, uh, that she lived in this place called Nazareth, which is this total no-name, backwater, podunk, obscure town. And so, and so here's this young, poor, no-name girl living in uh, no-name Nazareth. And this angel shows up and says, you are unique. The Lord is with you. You are the one that is favored. doesn't make sense to her. And in fact, look at verse 30. The angel doubles down. The angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That word favor there is the same word that we translate in other places, grace. The Lord has graced you. You have been graciously chosen. The reason why that word is so important is because that shows you that the way that God relates to people is always by grace. He wasn't scanning the human horizon, and he sees Mary, and he says, okay, this girl is our five-star recruit. She's amazing. We got to choose her. It's, it's almost, it's, it's because it's so unexpected. She's at the bottom of society. She's at the margins of society. She's no name. She's in this no name place. And yet God shows up and says, you're going to play a massively significant role in redemptive history. He graciously chooses her, which is, it gives you just this little window into how God relates to any of us. God always relates to people. He always brings people into the kingdom by grace. It's never because of our merit. It's never because of our accomplishments. It's never because of how high we've climbed at the ladder, how spiritual we are, how smart we are, how good we are. He just graciously chooses who he chooses. And here is this girl, young girl, poor girl, and um, uh, she's, she's, she has no resources, so she would, have not, she would have not been at the top of her, you know, uh, n- no influence she would have been, you know, she's young, so she's not old, so she has, she has no accomplishments. Um, she's, she's, it is this complete shocking picture of grace, and yet that God's, that's how God shows up in her life, shockingly intrudes into her life. But there's more, because this intrusion isn't just alerting you to the fact that God is, uh, is shockingly gracious, but this intrusion is also infinitely healing. Look at what happens next. In verse 31, the angel goes on and says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In other words, uh, Mary, you're going to give birth to a son. And here's what's fascinating about this son is that when you read this passage, he's really described as three sons wrapped into one human being. You notice that? Look at verse 31. The angel tells Mary, okay, you will bear a son. So you got Mary's son. And then look at verse 32. He says, he'll also be called the son of the Most High. So he'll be the son of God himself, son of Mary Son of God. And then look at the end of verse 32. It says, the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, which means he'll be David's son. In other words, all of this is saying, okay, Mary, you're going to give birth to this child that is going to be God in the flesh, who has come to sit on the throne of his great, 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 great grandfather, David. This is our long-awaited king who has come. 
Now, do you remember, um, of course you remember, the 1991 hit single, Mary Did You Know? Classic bop, straight dropped in the early 90s by, uh, uh, oh, uh, who's the guy that wrote it? I'm blanking on his name. Mark Lowry, thank you. Doesn't matter. Um, but Pentatonix covered it. Carrie Underwood covered it. And uh, so you know it's amazing. And if you're familiar with the song, the song is asking Mary uh, all these questions. And one of the lines of the song goes like this. Mary, did you know <laughs> that your baby boy, I'm not going to sing it at all, uh, that your baby boy, would, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? That's the question. And the answer is yes. You know why? Mary J or Gabriel just told her. He just, I mean, in some ways that song's a little silly because, like, the Bible says, yes, she knew. Gabriel just told her, you're going to give birth to a king and he's going to rule the nations. You think about a king, especially as Americans. I mean, kings are kind of mythical. They're, they feel like they're far off and ancient. But a king is someone who really thinks that their agenda is more important than yours. A king expects allegiance and loyalty and obedience. And as modern Americans who love freedom, we hear this and think, that doesn't sound good. This doesn't sound like good news. So why in the world would it be good news to say, hey, a king is coming? Here's why. If you think about, uh, just picture an NBA game. Um, and let's just say that in, in this particular uh, night, there are no refs, and therefore it's kind of every player can kind of do whatever they want. So you have one player that's like, okay, if nobody's going to call anything, if I can just do whatever I want, I'm not even going to waste time dribbling. I'm just going to grab the ball and just run like I'm a running back. So you got that guy doing that, and you have another player that says, well, if nobody's going to call this game, then I'm just going to show up with a baseball bat and uh, take people out of the leg when they're trying to, you know, shoot free throws, and that'll help our team out. you got another player that says, well, if you can do anything you want, I'm just going to wear stilts, and I'll just stand by the goal. You just pass it to me, and I'll just drop it down in there. Easy, unless the baseball bat guy, you know, <laughs> takes care of me. But if you, know, you have all these players doing whatever they want, it's, it's complete chaos. And it might sound fun initially. You can just go in there and do whatever you want. It's, it's, you, if you've ever played like a pickup game of basketball like this, where it's just out of it's no longer fun. You need somebody blowing the whistle saying, that's a foul, that's out of bounds. That's, you know, you, you can't bring a baseball bat to this sport. You, know, you, you need somebody to rein everybody in because it creates peace. Those rules are not in place to oppress the players. They're there to liberate the players so that they can actually have fun. They can enjoy the game the way it's intended to be played. The reason why our world is a mess is because every human being showed up saying, I'll just do whatever I want to do. I don't care what God's rules are, what God's kingdom is all about. I'll just do whatever I want. So we say things like, okay, I know God tells me that I should forgive people. I don't like doing that. I don't want to do that. So I'm going to retaliate when I'm hurt. I'm going to hold grudges when I'm hurt. You hear God say um, certain things about how you're supposed to relate to your own body. You say, well, I don't care what God tells me to do with my body. I'll do whatever I want with my body. I'll have sex with whoever I want to have sex with, as long as it's consensual. Uh, we hear God say... Um, uh, you should be temperate. We say, oh, I don't want to be temperate. I'm going to take my rage to the internet. 
And on and on and on and on. In other words, the reason why the world's a mess is because everybody's saying, I'll just do whatever I want to do. And we woke up in a world of chaos. And so what we need is somebody to come in and to establish peace and, and, and rein things in and push out the chaos so that human beings are able to thrive and flourish in the way that they were designed to thrive and to flourish. And the promise of Advent is that that is what Jesus has come to do. He is this long-awaited king who's come to push out the chaos and to reestablish peace and harmony and justice and righteousness and truth and beauty. The world wasn't intended to be out of control and messy in the way that it currently is. So this, this intrusion, it is, it's infinitely healing because it promises that one day, someday, everything will be healed. Everything will be made new. Everything will be made right. But here's the last thing that I want you to see about this divine intrusion. It is worth the cost. And here's what I mean by that. You go back to the story. Um, Mary receives this message that she's going to be pregnant with a son, and she asks the million-dollar question in verse 34. She says, uh, okay, well, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She was uh, betrothed to Joseph. She was legally engaged to be married to Joseph, but she had not con- they had not consummated their relationship with each other yet. And so she's thinking, okay, if I'm going to get pregnant, how is this going to work? And so the angel goes on in verse 35 to explain that the Holy Spirit is going to supernaturally bring this about inside of you, which is a little mind-blowing to even think about what it was like for her to process this information. But, but here's what she says in the end. This is astounding. Look at verse 38. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She, she says, I am but a servant. So just, you know... This is, this is Mother Mary speaking words of wisdom. She says, let it be. Let it be to me according to your word. Whatever you say, I'm in. It's this, extre- it's this really notable act of faith and submission. And you think, okay, here's somebody who said, sweet, thumbs up for the supernatural Jesus birth thing. I'm in. But what she's really signing up for is pretty astounding when you think about it. Because she is risking everything when she says, let it be to me according to your word. She's risking her marriage. Her very marriage is in jeopardy because she's going to have to go to her fiancé and essentially communicate to him, hey, I'm pregnant, and you're not the father. God's the father, which is a pretty tough thing to communicate. To, you know, it's pretty unbelievable to try to sell that to somebody. In fact, in Matthew's story, when, when Matthew, in his gospel, when he tells this story, he says that Joseph's first response was to quietly divorce her. That was, her first, that was his first reaction. We're just, we'll just call the wedding off. It's obviously not true. So she's risking her marriage. She's risking her reputation because she is eventually going to start showing. And when you start showing and you're engaged and you're in this ancient Near Eastern culture, people are going to assume, okay, one, you were either uh, unfaithful to the man that you're engaged to be married to, or you've been ungodly with the man that you've been, you're engaged to be married to. Y'all, y'all been messing around before, uh, before your wedding day. Either way, she is now publicly, it's a, it's, a, it's a scandal. Everyone in her community would have thrown major shade at her. She would have been ostracized. She, she, she would have been that girl. Her reputation's at stake. And third, her, her very life's at stake. 
Because in this particular culture, the, the punishment for adultery was death. And that wasn't often done for somebody of, of her age, but this is, a, this is a real thing that's on the table. This is a real option for her. So you think, okay, by her signing up, by her saying, let it be, let it be to me according to your word, she is risking her life, she's risking her reputation, she's risking, her, she's risking everything. Why in the world would someone sign up for suffering knowing it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost her so much? Why would she do this? And here's why. She's signing up for suffering because she knows that it is worth it to have Jesus with her than it is to have Jesus without, apart from her. In other words, what she's saying in her mind is she's saying, it is more valuable to me to have a life of suffering with Jesus than to have a life of comfort without him. I will take whatever I, uh, whatever I lose because it's, it's, what I gain is more valuable to me. In fact, this is, this is why we do anything hard. We do hard things because we know on the other side of doing this hard thing is something that I really value. It's worth it to me. You think about exercise. Why in the world would anyone exercise? I mean, you get out there and you're, you're, you're running, your heart's going fast and your muscles are on fire and you're sweaty and you're nasty and you're stinking and you, you can't breathe. Why, why would anyone do this to themselves? Well, because uh, we say... Um, if I, when I exercise, I, you know, what, I value calories getting burned. I value the endorphins. I value the, um, the, 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 the way that I feel healthy. I value feeling self-righteous <laughs> over the people that didn't exercise this morning like I did. You know, we, we value these things, so we do hard things. So here's this, here's this young girl, and she is signing up for incredible suffering because for whatever reason, in her mind, she thinks it is worth it to have Jesus a life of suffering with him is more valuable to her than a life of comfort without him. And here's the irony of ironies. The very reason that that baby is in her womb in the first place, the reason why there's even a Christmas is because God himself has thought that same thing about her and about you and about me. I mean, the reason why this is a thing, the reason why we do all of this is because in the heart of heart of God, he looked at you and me and said, a life of suffering is infinitely more valuable to me if I can have you than to have a life of comfort and not have you. And so he came and he gave up his glory and he gave up his privileges and he gave up the comfort of heaven and he came and became a vulnerable infant born into an impoverished family run by teenagers. And as this child grew up, he, he gave up his reputation. He was misunderstood. He was laughed at. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was rejected. He was betrayed. And of course, uh, he ultimately gives up his very life. He is beaten and pummeled and stabbed and nailed to a cross. Why? Because it was the only way that he could have you. It was the only way that he could have me. He said, I will take all of that, all of that suffering, all of that loss, because if I can get you, it's infinitely worth it to me. You know what that means? That means that you are God's treasure. You, you are the apple of his eye. He looked at you and said, my very life doesn't matter as much to me as it is to have you. When you know that, 
when you know that when God looks at you, you are his treasure, that's what begins to do this work in your own heart where you begin to say, okay, well, he's worth whatever cost it incurs to me as well. I will risk giving up my reputation. I don't need it in the same way. I have him. I don't need my money in the same way. I can give it away. I have him. I don't need my life in the same way. I can give it away because I have him. Changes everything. Totally disruptive. Upturns everything about your life. And yet in the end, you are healed. And you'll be redeemed and you'll be restored. So here's my ask of you this morning. We're heading into Advent. Here we are. We're heading towards Christmas. And I want you to enjoy all the things, all the parties and the gingerbread cookies and the pastries and the sugary Starbucks drinks and all the things, the presents. But I don't want you to be distracted by those things. It's really easy for this whole season just be sentimentalized and it's all about nostalgia and it's about cheesy, cliche little phrases that get put on Christmas cards and you don't really think about it. They don't really mean anything. Don't be distracted by all the stuff. Enjoy the stuff. But know that the reason this whole thing is a thing, the reason why this season is even a season is because it is God screaming to you, you are loved and you were worth it to me to give up everything for. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you are worth the cost of giving up all of our life, all of our breath, everything that we have, uh, because we see a God that is so loving and so giving that you gave up everything for us. Would you do this disruptive, intrusive work in our own hearts? Just as Jesus broke into darkness, would you, like a light in in the own darkness of our own souls, would you break in, turn everything upside down, and help us to see how shockingly gracious, infinitely healing, and worthy of it all you truly are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.